You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Monday, August the 14th. You think that time between Goodwood and York is a quiet one. And you think again, because over the weekend, we've enjoyed some wonderful Group 1 action. The Prix Jacques Lamaroua at Deauville went the way of Inspiral, Frankie Dottori and John Gosden. The Keeneland Phoenix Stakes to Bucanero Fuerte for Ammo Racing. And for Kevin Stott and Adrian Murray, his first Group 1 winner. And a first uh, winner at the top level for another veteran trainer. 30 years in the game, Stefan Vatel took the Grosser Price von Berlin. The race that has thrown up the last two art winners. Could it have thrown up a third in the shape of Sim Camille? Also, later in the programme, we will be reviewing the story of a a 76-year-old punter, one of the most respected in the country, who, because of what has been happening over the last few months and the uncertainty surrounding affordability checks, has closed his busiest betting account. But first of all, what about the comeback of all comebacks? Off the ropes in style, in spiral, and a visibly moved Frankie Dottori taking the pre-Jacques Lamaroua at Deauville. What about that to liven up a lazy Sunday afternoon, Lydia Hislop? Inspiral was chasing her first win since she'd won the Jacques Lamaroua in 2022. She'd obviously gone there just 11 days after finishing last of five in the Sussex, where she attempted to put it up quite a long way out in the straight to Paddington and uh, ended up being hoist by her own Petard. Uh, she'd been increasingly uh, suffering, certainly to my eyes, from some issues at the start. And I have to say, I wasn't expecting this, but she came back to her best. She, it meant four, four in a row for uh, Frankie Dottori and John Gosden as a combination. They'd won it previously with back-to-back winner um, Palace Pier as well. Uh, she was switched from stall one at the start, switched around the field. The team were beforehand worried about that draw and Frankie Tori was able to nullify it by that move, in effect turning it into stall 12. She crept into the race. The pace was set by Big Rock. Um, she ran down that horse who'd finished second in the Prix du Jockey Club previously and she ran out a back-to-back winner. But the most interesting part of it was the level to which Frankie Dottori became emotional immediately afterwards. There were some great scenes where the jockeys in France gave him a guard of honour. Yves Saint-Martin, who rode with his father, Gianfranco, he was there, 81 years of age, paying tribute to Frankie Dottori. And uh, the crowd were also very aware that that was, might have been the last time that they saw Frankie Dottori riding at Deauville. It's understandable why Frankie Dottori, in the immediate aftermath, found it quite difficult to hold back the tears. Yeah, I spoke to him uh, this morning when the dust had settled and he sort of talked me through how he was feeling uh, on this on this momentous day. Yeah, I mean, I, from the minute I got up in the morning, I was getting ready with my putting my smart suit for Doyle. I was thinking, God, this is my last one. Uh, it's been a good uh, hunting ground for me. And, you know, I already started the day with a nostalgic feeling. And then... Uh, and then winner, it just kind of triggered everything a bit and just got a little bit emotional. Um, you know, I got an amazing reception from the crowd. All the jockeys came out, uh, Yves Martin, 
well, doesn't go racing very often these days. He made a trip to the races to see me. Yeah, it was very moving, I must say. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I rode big races, but, you know, you, you know, so often you see the crowd gathering around the winner's enclosure and, and staying there for a good half an hour. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, pretty emotional, I must say. Uh, did your career must have just overlapped with Yves and Martin, did it? I didn't ride with him, unfortunately. Did you not? I think I, th- I think back in the day, uh, the French jockey club had a cap on the jockeys. You couldn't ride over forty-five, uh-huh. so he was yet to stop premature. And but obviously, you know, I've heard of him when you know the trips abroad and my father had with him, and uh, yeah, it was. So I did follow his career, you know, in a way, but I never got to ride with him. It's almost as as though I mean I, I've never seen you turn up anywhere looking scruffy. To be fair, but it's almost as though that's part of the ritual of a big day. To, to what extent is that you getting yourself in the in the frame of mind that you need to to for for a big race? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's why I thought yesterday when I was putting my suit on, thinking, God, this is the last time I'm going to do this going to France. You know, of course I will go to the Ark and stuff, but you know, who knows when I'm going to go back to Deauville? You know, I probably will go one day as a as a spectator or you know just having a nice weekend but you know regarding you know me going there as a professional athlete and competing in the big races is not gonna happen again so you know i, I felt i felt that to my shoulder yesterday and and you know obviously I, you know of course you try to win but you know you, you sometimes you think well you just ask yourself too much expecting to win as well you know on your last day but it did happen and uh and it's crazy really just if we think about it you know my last ride winning the biggest race in doorbell it's just mad really but obviously all, all all this emotion is being channeled in the right direction because the performance on the race course is is right up to right up to par you you obviously feel good when you're when you're when you're in those races yeah look um obviously because I've only got nine weeks left I don't feel any pressure that I have to prove myself so in that way I'll probably more relax riding because you know they're not, they're not going to sack me now it's too late <laughs> I'm leaving so I kind of have I kind of have a lot a good piece of frame of mind going into the races and I don't feel stressed you know I'm just trying to do the job and and I'm pretty uh, calm in my head and uh, John has been great you know with me he's not uh, making me feel any pressure uh, especially in my last year and and great for Mrs. Thompson and the team you know she's a she's a great feeling you know she can be a bit temperamental at times but when she's good she's very good as she proved yesterday now um yesterday she she quick and past them you know quite strikingly to the eye to what extent do you think it was about pace the fact she had some pace to run at whereas at Ascot they didn't really go any gallop at all yeah I mean the Ascot was softer than yesterday she needs a good strong gallop and she needs some cover and um, I had all of that yesterday uh, we were debating of putting her out in the Sussex but somebody had to take Paddington on otherwise there'd be no horse racing and uh, you know but we always you know, in the back of my mind, if it wasn't going to happen, well, I was going to be kind enough because 
this was the main target and we, we you know and this time of the year you know all you needed a couple of days of, of sunshine and the ground dries really quick so it worked out you know well done for the Gosden's team and uh, you know because it takes some doing back in Europe after 11 days in group ones yeah and, but actually immediately after the Sussex you were like yeah we're going to go back to the the Jacques Lamar and I said why did you take why did you take Ryan on so early in the Sussex he said what do you want me to do write him a check straight away before the race yeah, absolutely I mean exactly uh, I mean take nothing away from Paddington but you know somebody got to serve it up to him you might, and, uh, you, you, the only one. yeah, but you're about to serve it up to him again on on Mostadaf in the in the Judmont International. How how yeah. much are you looking forward to that? Yeah, I mean, I was I rode him the other morning. It's a beautiful specimen of a horse. Is you know strong and it's got a lovely stride. And he doesn't overdo himself in the mornings, but you know we know exactly what he can do. And uh, yeah, I'm you know I'm excited. I mean, so you know what he did in the Prince of Wales. I mean, I I was pretty taken so he's, he's, gonna, he's gonna be there with uh, every chance um, how, I mean are you are you pretty confident in your own mind that you've got the you've got the weaponry to beat Paddington um, man he's a good horse in, you know this is you know in the Sussex it was a non-event uh, uh, Paddington is still good you know he, he put Chaldean to bed in St James's Palace when I was second in good style and uh, and he beat uh, Emily, so he's he's you know at the, he's at the moment the best free roll around. Uh, but uh, you know I, th- I think this is his test now. He's taking on you know a five length winner of the Prince of Wales. So um, it's there's a different it's going to be a different race than what he's, he's faced. You know, but I have no doubts that he's a, he's, a, he's a good horse because it looks like he only does. Uh, what he has to do, and he's, uh, he, he looks like he's still got something in the locker. So, but uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll give him a race and see what happens. No, you keep squeezing out these these dates now. So it's now um, we're going uh, Breeders Melbourne, Breeders Melbourne, Hong Kong. Is that still still the plan? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And that's well, you know, you know, at the moment, Kiros Marchand wants him to ride him in Hong Kong, so. Uh, you know, but we still got a long way to go. Uh, let's hope he stays in one piece. That was Frankie Dottori. I realise, Lydia, there is an element of wash, rinse, repeat with with this story when he rides another big race winner. But each chapter has been has been subtly different, and there there was a, definitely a, a a stronger emotional uh, undercurrent to yesterday than there had been all season. Yeah, it brought out a, a highly emotional response. And yeah, I know there are some people who are big fans of racing who are finding the sort of endless long goodbye from Frankie Dottori a, a bit repetitive, a bit, and maybe starting too soon. But there was some genuine emotion on show there yesterday, both from the French side and from Dottori himself. Okay, that's what happened in France yesterday. As for the as for the horse in Spiral, I mean that's a that's a really noteworthy comeback because. We spoke on the podcast on Friday. I, I, I know you were you were more forthright than I was, but I, to be honest, I, I didn't really fancy it yesterday. No, I, I thought that her um, her genes. The, there were some some tricky genes for John Gosden to cope with. There, he trained the Mother Star Scope, um, but he's managed to 
to manage her um he referred afterwards to how she can she can play about and how she got left at the start at ascot but didn't do that in the jacques lamoa uh, she's done it a few times in her career um and it, it it i thought it was increasingly becoming an issue right back to it and there was even a you know she had every opportunity to uh play up in terms of frank half missing a beat in order to be able to act, execute that maneuver uh, to the right place in the track where he and John Gosden felt the pace was stronger and that she would be better positioned. So, yeah, she's done really well. It was a win and you're in race for the Breeders' Cup mile. Um, so that is a potential target. She's got an entry against her own gender in the Sun Chariot. There's the potential of the Queen Elizabeth II stakes on British Champions Day. But, of course, there's Nashua in the same stable. And after her defeat in the Nassau and her tremendous win in the Falmouth, those connections, John Gosden and Holly Doyle and, and everyone around Nashua, starting to think that actually as she's got older, a mile is her optimum trip. So they, he, he, they've got two fillies with similar requirements in the same yard. So it'll be interesting to see how the two of them have campaigned, crucially, of course, in different ownerships. And what did you make of Frankie's comments about Mostadaf there? I'm Just the, the fact that he clearly got a nice a nice buzz off him when he when he wrote him work that's really exciting uh it, it's exciting because it, it's going to be the biggest test that paddington's had yet um you know mustard beat a quality field trounced a quality field in the prince of wales's stakes chased um equinox in the shima classic tried to press that horse and didn't appear to stay a mile and a half and equinox um ended up beating beating him thoroughly but that level of form that he showed at royal ascot means that he's going to be paddington's biggest test yet and i think that is important in terms of uh, both of their their profiles and the substance of their form and of course we can add i i, I don't even want to say his name i don't want a desert crown <laughs> you don't want to bock it by mentioning him oh be, i mean it would be brilliant to see him uh, that's the idea isn't it but of course Frankie will be on Mosterdaff and Ryan Moore will be on Paddington. And are we going to go around this again? Are they going to give William Buick the ride on Desert Crown again? Or or will they just finally say, come on a minute, just give the ride back to Richard Kingscott? Come on, it's got to be Richard Kingscott. I mean, you know, it, 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 what does it say about the relationship if it's not Richard Kingscott? Well, if you're, if you're not, if you're not third choice. Hmm. Quite. I mean, it is a bit, it, it, they, they get, it does get to a point where it becomes a bit bizarre, doesn't it? I think so. I think so. And uh, I, I'm not really seeing uh, where Richard Kingscott has done anything wrong. I mean, this horse was beaten by Hookham on his first run for almost a year since winning the Derby. And we've seen what Hookham has gone on gone on to do. And then if we think about what Bay Bridge did over in Ireland, well, the horse was far too keen, had to be covered up. Nobody else, I think, would have done anything different. So um, I think there are... Um, I, I, I do think if 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 in the circumstances it's not Richard Kingscutt, then it just becomes absurd. Right, briskly through the other group ones, Buccaneero Fuerte. What? How would you rate his chances in a matchup with City of Troy if that happened in the national stakes? I much prefer City of Troy. I was I was really impressed by that superlative superlative win. I'm not in any way putting down Buccaneero Fuerte, who I think will improve for a step up to seven furlongs. They're talking about the national stakes next. He shaped um, the time before as and when third in the Coventry, as though that's the trip that he would want. He was ridden very positively here today. Uh, sorry, here uh, in the um, Phoenix Stakes on on um, Saturday by Kevin Stott, and uh, that was uh, an impressive win 
in the end, Kevin was talking afterwards that he knew he would stay further, that he's an uncomplicated horse. You would think, I mean, they hope that he might be a Guinea's prospect, potentially his full brother beat Le Bon, um, won the Golden Miler for Mark of 104, but the other full bro- brother was Wooded, who won the Abbey over five furlongs. But he shapes as though he takes a little bit more after beat Le Bon. Significant win, of course, for Adrian Murray as well, the, the trainer of Bucanero Fuerte. Um, he has, uh, that was his first Group 1 winner. He had Valiant Force, the winner of the Norfolk that brought him his first pattern success. Um, his best score as a trainer has been nine winners in Ireland last season. And prior to that, he'd, he'd trained three winners in total. Um, and he'd been a trainer since 2016. In some ways, he's got a similar profile to Dominic French Davis, who, of course, had his first group success of his career when Persian Dreamer won the Duchess of Cambridge stakes at the July meeting. Um, he, of course, has been training for longer back since 1994, but his best score was 13 winners in 2010. And he had a bit of a dip uh, prior to uh, getting the uh, patronage of Amma Racing and Keir Jurabchan. And I'd be, I'd be genuinely interested to hear um, what Keir Jurabchan and his racing manager, um, Tom Pennington, have to say about the rationale with which that they chose certain of their trainers, certainly those trainers that they seem to be having the biggest success with. When I spoke to Keir about it, this was way back at the Craver meeting, he was saying he, he likes to give small stables a chance. But it is quite notable, the profile of these two trainers and the success that they are achieving this season. Yeah, and they've clearly both both stables benefiting from the, the Brazilian backroom, aren't they? The the um, strong uh, core of uh, of talented uh, Brazilian uh, trainers who are who are you know providing some of the backup. Definitely, um, Robson Aguia, um, who rides uh, Bucanero Fuerte work, um, he is ke- clearly a key member of the of the Murray team. And as you say, the, the similar applies um, over here. And and again, I'd like to I'd like to understand how that talent spotting came about, and what is it particularly that the team saw in those uh, those people that they felt would be positive to the operation. I think it's a really um, interesting thing to explore. Also, veteran trainer tasting his first Group 1 success, though not quite so much against the run of play. In fact, it was long overdue. Stefan Vatel, who's a very good trainer and a, a good guy too, winning with Sim Camille, the Grosser Price von Berlin. A race that, that sort of got overlooked for years and years and years. But if you're not going to take it seriously now after <laughs> Torquato, Tasso and Alpinista, when are you going to take it seriously? Really, could it be three arc winners in a row as stepping stones? Uh, long overdue, I think, for, for Sim Camille and also for his trainer. First group one success, really smoothly done. Beat Sisyphan, who was the German derby winner back in 2021, now a five-year-old. An assistant who arguably maybe a little bit too far back. New London um, took the pace to the race, wearing cheek pieces the first time, but folded quite quickly. And we should go back to, because this links up with the Jacques Lemaurois, Um uh, Sim Camille was a short price favourite to win this Group 1 in Hopgarten. Um, he, he obviously missed the King George. If we go back to last season, he finished second to Ernesto in the Grand Prix de Paris. He also won the Niel. He's won two Group 2 races this season. But Ernesto ran quite an eye-catching fourth in the Jacques Lemarois, bearing in mind that his best form is over further than a mile. It was his belated seasonal debut and he shaped quite well on that occasion. So um, two horses who have got substantial form from last season uh, putting down uh, their cards as outsiders to be um, taken seriously potentially in the arc and onwards to the international jockeys challenge the dubai duty free shergar cup took place on saturday and once again it was victory for an all-female team of riders 
uh, captained by Sugar Cup stalwart Hayley Turner, with Silver Saddle winner Holly Doyle, who had a, a brace of winners, and that feat was emulated by Safi Osborne, who joins me now on the crest of a wave with winners in the Racing League last week as well, plus that group race victory on Random Harvest just a couple of weeks ago. Safi, things going incredibly well. Uh, to expectation or exceeding expectation? Um... I don't know, I tried not to set too many targets for myself this year. Obviously, it was the first year out of my claim, and um, it was just important to sort of ride as many winners as possible and um, get on a better quality of horse, and luckily that's happened, and um, no, it's, it's been a good couple of weeks. And how important have these competitions like the Racing League, well, particularly the Racing League, but also Saturday's Shergar Cup been in terms of bolstering your profile and getting you noticed and, and appreciated by more by more people? Um, massive. I think obviously um, they've sort of reached a wide audience, and um, yeah, it's been big for me to sort of help raise my profile. And as I said, they're they're big competitions, but they're also a better quality of horse. And um, yeah, no, it's been great to get on horses that I might not have got on without those competitions. How are you feeling in terms of your own riding and uh, and your own uh, place in the world relative to how you say we're feeling twelve months ago and and before? massively different um i think i said on an interview that on saturday that i feel like it's the first year that i think my riding and sort of everything else is starting to kick into place i feel sort of really confident in where i am now and um definitely a lot different to 12 months ago i think i think it was apparent that when i started riding god three years ago now that like I, i wasn't as strong as i wanted to be and um, I wasn't delusional in the fact that I, I looked how I looked on a horse and I think this is the first year I sort of um, feel really confident in my riding and feel like it's come a long way. Uh, as far as the, the sort of profile horses you've been riding this season, I mean, Random Harvest would be the obvious one. Uh, she was a winner at, at Ascot again the other day. What would be the plan for her in the in the next few weeks? Um, talking to Ed, hopefully she'll... Um, I think the plan is to run next weekend, whether it's at York or whether it's at Goodwood, I'm not sure. Um, but that was the plan, talking to him. And um, you know, she's been massive for my career. And it's just been sort of horses like her. And Metier obviously hasn't been seen during the summer because I was trying to wait for some softer ground, even though we had had softer ground. But um, hopefully he'll come back out in the autumn. But horses like that have just been sort of monumental for my career at this point and helping me sort of get onto the bigger stage and um, prove myself really and it's just thanks to people for leaving me on them. And Saturday I, I just tuned in in time to see you um, uh, pipping your teammate aboard aboard Scampi was was that the one that gave you the most satisfaction? Yeah he gave me a real buzz um, no, I obviously um, had sort of play a waiting game with him, and um, no, to get to get the head bob was um, really thrilling. And um, he's a horse that has so many owners in race share, obviously. Um, and he got a massive cheer when the photo finish got called out. So now that was a, a massive thrill. And uh, Dark Trooper also, he's a really really smart horse to go forward with the rest of the season. I was lucky, to, quite funny to have drawn one of Ed Walkers in the competition. But um, no, yeah, he's a really smart horse to go forward with as well. Well, there you go. It was another uh, great performance from from the the female team in the in the Shergar Cup. Safi Osborne, Holly Doyle, Haley Turner, um, Lydia. I, I get a pretty strong sense now that uh, if if previous BHA chief executive Nick Rust's a prediction that there'd be a, a female champion jockey within five years of two thousand eighteen hasn't quite come to fruition, his prediction might not have been too far wide of the mark. I mean, next two or three years, it's it's feasible, isn't it? 
I hope that's true. Yes, I think it is feasible. Absolutely. Um, and if we think about uh, the ways with which women are moving forward, particularly on the flat in Britain, um, you know, Alex Greaves at the forefront, the next wave being Hayley Turner. There are obviously women here who I'm overlooking in this very quick precis of the, the, the forward march of women. Holly Doyle, who has is at the absolute top table. Um, you could argue that you would want to see, given the, the level of her ability and how she takes her chances when presented to her, that you might want to see her at, at group one level more frequently. But that is probably a function of the fact that the very best uh, horses are increasingly collected in very few hands and those very few hands have well established first string jockey second string jockey etc etc um, and now with Safi Osborne the next wave coming forward it does remain an issue though I mean it just because we've got lots of wonderful swallows it doesn't mean we're yet at the summer um, I know that last time I checked the figures with the British Horse Racing Authority in terms of uh, the percentage number of rides compared to the percentage number of licenses women are still down compared to men and most the, the primary point is that if they get on a horse that then starts going up in grade, mm -hmm. as it goes up in grade, and especially as it moves into pattern company, they are far less likely to retain the ride. So, yes, we've got some pioneers, some people who are highly talented at, at the forefront, who are just rightly just considered jockeys rather than female jockeys. But that isn't to say that we're at parity yet because we're not. I want to talk about Alan Potts who is yes. somebody that you know well and I know a little bit. Um, he, I, I couldn't believe he was 76. He, he, that, that's probably about the only part of this he's going to thank me for. Um, <laughs> but he he has closed down his, his well, his, his busiest betting account. Just, just tell me why. Well, he's had it closed for him, in effect, uh, because of um, affordability checks. But um, just to go back on on Alan um he's now 76 he's been betting for more than 40 years he became a professional punter in November 1980 he wrote a book that many people who are interested in punting will have read against the crowd methods of a modern backer fantastic book if you haven't read it I'd urge you to do so um I first met Alan in the original at the races studio where we were both pundits one afternoon um for I think it was Bath race course and he made me realize after about five years of being the evening standard racing correspondent and we were live on air when I realised this how little I knew about quotidian races on race courses that Channel 4 Racing didn't go to and uh, Alan was very polite uh, but I learned the extent of what I had to learn by listening to his pre-race analysis and applying uh, it to what I then saw so I'm very very grateful to, to Alan for making me wake up and smell the coffee and I am also uh, very grateful to to count him as a friend all of these years um, so he's a long-standing uh, customer of Betfair they uh, imposed a £500 deposit limit on his account without any warning they then retrospectively sent him an email asking that him to contact them, which he did so via their online chat. However, Betfair insisted on doing this via phone. Now, um, Alan has severe tinnitus, which means that it, it's very difficult for him to um, hold conversations on the phone or even uh, via Zoom or Teams or, or, or equivalent. Um, he has to do the, the majority of his communications either directly face to face or else via text in some kind of form. Um, 
Um, and there was a sort of toing and froing of, of, of protests, but Betfair proved pretty intransigent. Essentially, Alan said it came down um, to, to this, that he was essentially talking to, to somebody anonymous who he didn't know who they were. He didn't know what 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 level of authority uh, and seniority this person had that he was talking to about the future of his account. It could have been a junior reading for a script. It could have been somebody who was qualified to make such decisions. He, he didn't know and, and, he, and he wasn't told. This wasn't shared with him. And the second thing that he didn't like was the implied threat that a failure to comply or answer their questions would result in a further reduction of his monthly deposit limit or the suspension of his account. And also, as I said, the, the intransigence of insisting that they wanted to talk about this on the phone rather than, a, a, rather than being flexible for a long-standing customer. This is a, a customer of a company for more than 22 years from whom Betfair would have received thousands of pounds, thousands and thousands in pounds of commission over the year. He's 76 years of age. He's made a very reasonable request in terms of how to deal with him. And there is just no customer service. Is this how you treat a customer after all of that time? And so then to widen out this example um, into the sort of general generality, this is the reality of what customers face when they encounter uh, what is known as what the Gambling Commission call financial uh, risk checks. I mean, I'm glad, somebody... I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you made that point because I, I sort of felt listening to that, I felt you could insert the name of any any company there. Absolutely. Any, any betting company at this mo at this precise moment in time. Agreed. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm only mentioning Betfair specifically here in regards to one specific case, but I'm now winding it, as you say, to make, to make a wider point. It's the high-handedness of the way in which customers are dealt with by, by bookmakers. You know, uh, uh, things are withdrawn without prior notification. It, uh, limits are imposed without notification. Then when you try and have a, a conversation, you don't know who you're talking to, whether you're talking to someone who is empowered to make decisions or not. Um, it's There's no flexibility. There is no attempt to try and understand the customer. And this is the, the, the landscape in which the uh, Gambling Commission and the government using the Gambling Commission as, uh, as the way in which these are achieved is expecting uh, customers, betting customers, to be processed as a result of financial risk checks. Ah, oh, now, Lydia, you, you've got something hot off the press here from Betfair. I have. While you and I were, were talking to each other, Alan has forwarded me a message from um, a certain Bradley Williams, key account team manager at Betfair, who's been uh, this morning made aware of a negative recent experience that he's encountered with his account when going through one of their safer gambling controls. If possible, we'd like to give you a call to try and resolve the issue here. Please let me know if you're available for a chat today and I'll ask one of our account managers to give you a call when convenient. Alan says that he is just pondering on how to respond. Uh, all I would say to Betfair is listen to your customer. Um, the customer has already explained why a phone call isn't the way in which he uh, can, can speak to you. And I would suggest that one of your account managers should probably be replaced by somebody more senior. All right, to France again now, and just just buried in the margins of the Paris turf at the weekend was a story that could have quite significant implications from a, a bloodstock and racing point of view, and one that, that could, if it holds water, unite two of the great French breeding dynasties, because it seems from uh, word on the, on the race course and in the sales ring 
the the Wertheimer brothers, famous for Goldakova, of course, and um, Ark winning owners with with Solemia, uh, are interested in acquiring the remaining bloodstock interests of uh, the Wildenstein family, Diane Wildenstein, daughter of the late uh, Alec Wildenstein, and it. It, it, the, this is the, the company that now uh, trades under uh, Ballymore or, or Dayton Investments and, of course, are the, are the breeders of, of Paddington, uh, most famously this season, but have had some you know, wonderful horses down the years. Again, Pan Celeb being the, the most celebrated, perhaps, in, in recent memory. Our French correspondent, Adrian Cunhas, has uh, had his ear to the ground, and this is his take on the rumours that are swirling. According to... What I know and my information is that the deal is not finished, is not done. But there is, there is clearly an interest about the Wertheimer, about the Wildeichten operation, which is a small operation in terms of number, but with massive achievements. And in my mind, you know, in, in the post-Marcel Boussac era, the greatest breeding operation in this country is uh, the Wildeichten, because they never have massive number of mares, but they won so many classic and so many great group, group races. And at the moment, um, the Wertheimers, they do produce a lot of good horses, they have a good strike rate of runner to winner, but they haven't won a group one since 2018 with Polydream in Deauville. So they probably tried to do something a bit different to bring some new blood and, and to, to, to score at a higher level, because that's why, that's why they are in the game. From a long-term perspective, we were supposed to celebrate this year uh, a century of racing, of the breeding and racing of uh, the village chain. Uh, it's it, it, it's an incredible that's incredible the list of achievements they, they they have all around the world. You know they they started by buying uh, an awful lot of high quality racing fillies. Some of them with not great pedigrees but great racing fillies, and they were the base of this incredible uh, list of achievements. So you, you can remember a few years ago in 2016 when Peter Brandt uh, bought a lot of them at Goffs and uh, I think he spent like something 5 millions and among uh, the, the horses bought there was the dam of the group one winner in America, Raging Bull. You can see um, almost every month uh, black type winners from Village and Mare all around the world and recently we can talk about of course uh, Luxembourg and the remaining of the village and operation itself is from very high quality and the best example being the champion Paddington. There is a, <coughs> a long friendship between the, the two families, the Wildeschen and the Wertheimer, and, uh, and they, there is a lot of respect between them. Uh, and um, up to now, the, the Wertheimers are quite a decent success with a few men they bought from uh, the village chain, one of them being Arme Ancienne from the famous A family, and she gave to the Wertheimer the, the group one horse, Ziyad. So it would be interesting to see how this story is going and if the deal is really made and, and how it works. And I hope it's not the end of the um, village chain in the racing world because all sport, especially in France, owes a lot to this family. And they really were a um, standard setter, I, I would say. So let's see in what direction it goes. Adrian Cunhas there on the possible deal, the deal that's being rumoured that could unite two of the great bloodstock houses in French racing history. Well, we're building towards sales season on the pod. 
uh, these next few weeks. And with that in mind, we must check in with, with Keeneland and with their director of sales, Tony Lacey, because the publication of the, I can call it the monster catalogue, Tony, has just, just, just taken place. Just give us an idea of the breadth, the scale, the scope of the, of the major uh, Keeneland uh, fall auction. Well, good out. Good morning, uh, Nick. It's uh, quite honestly, it's 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 a it's a uh, sort of the flagship yearling sale of the year for North America. It is the sort of the market shaper. Um, we've got four, almost four thousand almost four thousand two hundred uh, yearlings in this year's catalog. Over six books. The first two books will be held before the dark day. That'll be Monday, Tuesday, the eleventh, from the eleventh to the thirteenth of um, of of September, with the dark day on the Friday. And uh, yeah, so they'll have eleven hundred horses before the dark day. So it's anybody that's coming in for those first few days will get a be able to see almost everything before the first hit walks through the ring, which is we feel is really important. And the standard of the catalog is extremely high, so we feel like there's a great diversity in the in the in each day, and I think that's again incredibly important for diversity and selection of choice for all the diverse marketplace we we have to service. I just wonder, and maybe it's my imagination, whether the idea of what is relevant in Europe becoming relevant in America and what's relevant in America becoming relevant in Europe is starting to gather more traction again after a period where perhaps the two continents had started to go about things in a slightly more discreet way. Is, am, I, am, I, am I imagining that or am I feeling that right? No, absolutely. I remember when I started working for Arcana back, in the, back, in, uh, back a number of years ago, about 15 years ago now, it was really difficult to, to encourage Americans to, to travel to Europe. It was just something that didn't, was not under, in their consciousness. Uh, while now I think it, the American market is incredibly important to the to the European yearling and breeding stock markets, and on the flip side, that the European markets are incredibly important to the North American. There's been a, to the North American markets. There's been really good cross pollination in the bloodlines, and I think people, as we as things get a little stagnated and people sort of become more regional in their thinking i think what happens is that the bloodlines and we have less diversity it becomes a problem trying to find out crosses for fillies and stallions uh, so it's i think this is a really healthy but it's a natural uh, evolution of the bloodstock industry and i think the fact that we've got you know when you've got a lot more younger agents involved now that have traveled and worked in other parts of the world it's less of a daunting task the, 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 there are a lot of european pedigree, pedigrees that will be in the american catalogs because of the fact the fillies that were purchased in in, in europe were per, brought over to north america raced and now are in the gene pool so i think that again is and you find that the north american buyer is very uh, educated in the European pedigrees, not only European, it's Australian, Jap- Japanese, uh, just the global marketplace in general. So I think it's for, for the health of the global market, I think it's incredibly, it's, in, it's a great time. Yeah, I mean, I think of a horse like King of Steel, who's got fundamentally a Euro- European pedigree, but was raised and sold in, in the United States. We've been hearing how much the guys that, that produced him have enjoyed that, that story. I think about all the two-year-olds this year by, by Justify who are doing so well. Absolutely, and even uh, uh, Malibu Moon had a two-year-old winner uh, in, in, in uh, Royal Ascot, which, quite frankly, it, w- it wouldn't be f- foremost in the consciousness when you're thinking about a, you know a horse that would work in North America or 
important in Europe. So I think there's an understanding of the of what works in Europe and what works in North America and vice versa. And that I think again is a it's 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 just a, a better understanding of what works in each region. Um, and it's it's the same horses that were working work in California are not necessarily the same horses in, in New York. So that's that's a that's an awareness I think as as we go forward everybody is just they know good horses are everywhere there's value in different places and people are happy to travel and and, and work each sale as, as they come 4200 horses over six books of sales at keeneland all getting underway 11th to the 13th of september before the first of the dark days uh, tony thanks so much for for joining us we look forward to to many more updates uh, over the coming weeks thank you so much nick nick uh, pleasure talking to you as always all right, back to the race course before we conclude this podcast and to York and the Ebor Festival, which begins next Wednesday. So nine days from now, the Friday feature will be the Wooten Bassett Coolmore Nunthorpe Stakes. And behind the big two, Highfield Princess and Bradsell sits Regional, a fast improving horse trained in Yorkshire by Ed Bethel and has looked very rapid in a couple of starts this season. I put in a call to the trainer to ask him how Regional was getting on. Uh, very happy with him. He's gone. Um, he's training really well. He's got two more, two more pieces of work before we go there next Friday. Um, and look, we're under no illusions. It's going to be a pretty hard race uh, with uh, Highfield Princess and Bradsell. Um, but he goes there as an improver, and he broke a track record at Haydock over five, which which is which shows that he's pretty fast. So uh, yeah, we're we're excited. I mean, do you think? on what you've seen so far that he is an out and out five furlong horse do you think that's his specialism no but no not necessarily look he's obviously won over six for us before um i'm looking you know he looks very fast and i think that that sort of weapon that he has in his armory that he stays will um stand him in good stead in a in a group one sprint uh, over five I mean, when you began the season, could you imagine that you'd end up here? Was that something that you thought was was conceivable? Uh, <laughs> no, is the honest answer. Look, he's always shown he's a good horse, and I thought he'd just be one that would uh, give his owners a lot of fun in handicaps. Um, but uh, he's really, really, you know, he's just thrived, and he's thrived all year. He's a, he's a bigger model this year than he was last year. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it is something that, um, you know, it's, we're, we're really excited about. And you mentioned that you'd taken about other city wall stakes because the, the going went soft. How weather contingent are you, do you think? Well, look, I just love it to be good to firm ground. It'd just be fair. It would give him a fair fair chance of giving us a, an idea of if he's up to that level. You know, good to soft, I'd still run him because it's once and you know, as well give him a go because he's only had this will be his third run this year. Uh, um, but I don't think he, he would be suited as well. All right, thanks to all my guests today. Lydia is still with me. Has something for this Monday afternoon. I do. I'm going to Windsor in the evening, the 7.30. This is two for the gutter, who's dropped a couple of pounds uh, since the opening mark in July, but has run pretty well um, since the cheap pieces have been added, lowering in grade, down another couple of pounds. Uh, William Buick is on board. So it is two for the gutter in the 7.30 at Windsor this evening for William Buick and Ian Williams. Uh, Lydia, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Monday, August the 14th. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares. 
the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.